Hey, welcome to the Morning Mic Check. I'm Pat Brown here with Mike Metzger. Mike and I have known each other for a while now. I first met him around 2010, and he's become one of the key mentors in my life. Over the years, we've had countless conversations, and in almost every one, I've walked away having discovered something new. Mike has this unique ability where he can reframe a conversation, and you begin to discover a deeper reality around you. It's a bit like Alice tumbling down the rabbit hole. I'm releasing these conversations as an invitation to follow me as I go down that rabbit hole. Good morning, Mike. Good morning. So I had the privilege of listening to one of your conversations that you were talking with a good friend of ours, and uh, you you made a very uh, profound point in there that uh, I believe goes back to Chesterton, but you said something along the lines of, you know, and I'll let you clarify, but um, let's not confuse quarreling with arguing. Uh, and, um, I'll, you know, obviously that caused me to tilt my head a little bit, and so I, I'd, I'd like to talk more about how you see those as different. And, uh, and I think it has obviously application in, in the context of this conversation was marriage, which is great. But I, I also think about uh, in the workplace and with teams that I work with, and uh, you know, that kind of overlaps with some thoughts we've had on how do we actually create effective teams. So um, do you want to clarify that, that quote? And, and I'll let you just take it from there. Yeah, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, it's allergy time, listeners. So, yeah, we'll clarify two things. First of all, um, I don't think I make profound points. I make stumbling points, and then we stumble upon <laughs> trying to sort out what they are. Uh, yes, and the other was uh, Chesterton, who said to never let a quarrel ruin an argument. And so let's dive into that because. Uh, the best place to start, in my opinion, is uh, amongst the uh, several, really, these are profound books written by the late Philip Reef, R-I-E-F-F, was uh, one was called The Triumph of the Therapeutic, subtitle, Uses of Freud After Faith. And it's the idea that the therapeutic replace the theological as framing how we do most everything. And so because of that, um, a lot of people view argument as bad. So they acquiesce or what have you. And argument is um, actually essentially a good thing. That's, that's Thomas Aquinas. So Aquinas uh, once wrote that uh, civilization is constituted by conversation, that is, by argument. Civilized people treating each other as reasonable argue with one another. Barbarians club one another. And so for barbarians, nothing matters but power. And power is quarreling. But argument says this matters. And I'm going to treat you as a creative, intelligent, responsible being created by God. Hence, we can argue and see if we can discover or uh, get closer to the truth. Because as you well know in an argument, the truth usually lies somewhere between the two who are arguing. And in a quarrel, you're not trying to move up a position. You are defending 
And we well know that a defense of a position, the, all the evidence shows you really light up the left hemisphere of your brain. Whereas Ian McGilchrist points out amongst others, paradigm shifts happen when the right hemisphere of the brain lights up. That's where you change your mind. So we said a lot there, but that's, that's kind of the groundwork where we'll start. Yeah, that's helpful. I'm thinking of in the past when you challenged me with uh, the, the 20 question rule, which, which I think was half joking, but half true. And I definitely took it to heart. Um, but that was in, in conversations where I, I realized I had no dominion or no influence with the other person. Um, I was, I was to ask 20 questions before I ever made a statement. And uh, you, you clarified that by saying, but you must ask, you must ask good questions. And, uh, and the difference between a good question and just a question uh, is, is a bit, bit art. But one of the key things I picked up on that was I very quickly started to recognize my questions when I asked them were all leading questions. And I was always, I was still making statements and still directing towards somewhere with my questions and they were not good questions. <laughs> the person I was talking to definitely let me know they were not good questions. <laughs> I think we know that person, but anyway, keep going. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, in, in I can see 100%. It's, it's totally clear now. Oh yeah. I was quarreling. I, I, I didn't want to discover anything there. I, I just wanted to win and prove my point. And I think that that highlights a lot of the difference that you're talking about. Yeah, I, well, I mean, well, I hear you. I mean, um, I could write a book on quarreling. Um, God knows where all the um, sources of that. You know, I was with the group yesterday morning, and, and we put it this way: that uh, you know, God made the world to rotate one way, but it can go terribly wrong ten thousand ways. Mm. And um, when we say that the ought is can well the world ought to be a certain way, then Everything that goes against that is a wrong, but uh, it can just go. It can go terribly bad in a million different ways. And so, you know, a lot of this, for example, what drives it is just plain old insecurity. And uh, everyone on the planet knows something about that to some degree. And uh, you know, for me, it was part of the insecurity was. Uh, Growing up under a father who I greatly respected, but you know, I think he often made it clear he was the smartest person in the room, and um, so I grew up with some of that, some of that insecurity. First of all, in coming to faith, I felt like I was definitely demoted in his view. So then I began to, to strive to prove myself, or and when you prove, when you ought to prove yourself, or prove that, that uh, you know. Oh darn it! I have a brain. Um, you, you, I easily slip into quarreling because the point now is not to find the truth; it's for you to find out how smart I am. Mm. So it, it's uh, it goes wacky in a million different ways. Yeah. So, what do you make of you know, or how do you translate in it, the this whole the phrase you know, make your argument and and. I guess the way I interpret that is you are, you're putting together a set of statements that do at the end, like you do want to prove what you're trying to say. So 
is that are there pieces within that that are off is that uh partly just learning you know a poor definition of arguing um and an example would be you know even high school college papers where you you write to argue a point and the goal of that paper is to prove that you are right uh not necessarily uh, that's a good question by the way you've got 19 more before i'm gonna say anything <laughs> <laughs> it's uh i would think that the uh, goal of a good education is to arise to discover the truth that would be one of the goals also the goal of as christians understood it was to actually form the conscience and so on and so forth. Even I, I like how Westmont College out in Santa Barbara puts it. And of course, they have the luxury of living in Santa Barbara. So just about everything you say is going to be really cool. But one of their ambitions is that they can, um, students, one of their objectives in education is students ought to be able to rightly locate ourselves in history. And that takes argument rightly locate ourselves in history we won't take uh, too much of a uh, won't go down that rabbit trail very much except to say if you listen to these podcasts it would not be long before you would uh, begin to realize you know they are making mike, mike and pat are making this assumption that, that one of their operating default positions is that the western church is in exile similar to the babylonian exile and so when we locate ourselves in history and we could be wrong and we're certainly open to good argument about that but then a whole set of uh, assumptions and ideas about what's the most strategic use of our resources in our lives given that we are in a post-christian world and we are in exile and so because of that, a good education would encourage argument and not to prove that, rather to discover whether in fact that is close to the mark. Recognizing again in a good education informed by the faith that we know in part, we won't know fully until we're fully known when the perfect comes. So because of that, there's always, um, I'm, thinking of, I'm trying to think of the best word, Pat. Leslie Newbigin wrote a great deal about it, that um, there is always an openness that to discover where even though much of what we say is correct, we're still off the mark in some ways. And that takes argument. Mm. That's all part of con with versation, which is kind of a as idea of there's a lot of different verses here. We're going to look together. We can best discover, for example, what's what is our location in history. Now, I might sound a bit dense or esoteric. It's not meant to sound that way. It is that, again, you get married. When Kathy and I do premarital, our most recent uh, couple, he was, I think, early 60s, second marriage for both. 
let's just say she was 55. One thing we tell them is that, and by the way, so 60 plus 55, do my math here, 115. So you have 115 years of doing your own thing. How in heaven's name do you think you're going to come together and live as one? It's going to take a lot of arguing. Yeah, so what do you encourage or teach or even just observe as some of the core differences that play out when one is arguing or one is quarreling? Maybe, you know, how do you recognize that in yourself or just how do you, how do you rightfully pursue argument? Yeah, that's a good, good question. I'm two in. I, I'm two in. I'll tell you what, Pat. <laughs> the race to the finish. Can Pat get 20 before... <laughs> Listeners completely lose interest. <laughs> I'll put my money on the ladder. <clears throat> the best arguments actually are uh, are actually in a court of law often, um, where a judge will call you if it turns into a quarrel. There's kind of a um, an economy also at play, you can't yakety yak forever. Get to your point, counselor. And also, uh, and then third, and perhaps most importantly, and, but again, most uh, difficult quite often is, you actually have to take the issue and sort of place it on the table as a third party. Hmm. So if it's uh, you and uh, your wife or mine and my wife, Kathy, and, um, any issue but you have to place it there on the table so you feel in some way i'm not attacking you but we are going after this thing that i want to talk about because it matters That's i had a conversation with a young man um, this week and he's uh, in an occupation that he's not entirely happy with they're feeling some tension and so he wanted to approach his boss on, um, he didn't feel valued. And uh, I said to him, distinguish between motives and behavior. Because when you attack motives, this is going to turn into a quarrel. Mm. In the end of the day, the real problem is a lack of professionalism in the workplace where they have saddled him with more than they originally said they would saddle him with. And I said, you might feel like they don't value, but, but that means you can see their heart. That's a dangerous place to go. Jesus could go there, but you're not omniscient. And generally speaking, people aren't going to respond well. But I said, for example, if you were working at um, Starbucks and they paid you for 25 hours, but they expect you to work 40 hours. Would you do it? He said, nope. I said, well, there you go. Why not? That's not professional. And so you can have an argument then with your superiors, your boss, or what have you, over professionalism, but you can take professionalism and put it on the table and say to those you want to have an argument with, let's talk about professionalism in the workplace. Sort of a a dispassionate, disinterested, in the best sense of the word, you know what that word disinterested means. Um, let's talk about that. 
because in that case then a good argument you see through the issue back to your life but a quarrel often starts with your life to the issue and so you've expected me to be very secure as I'm feeling attacked so we can get to the issue good luck yeah that's that's super helpful I mean the motive piece I'm just thinking back and and yeah that's it's definitely a default of mine to automatically try to f flush out oh, what's the motive behind this and it and it does nothing in the conversation because <laughs> you know sometimes uh, you may be right or you may be mostly right but if you're not a hundred percent right on motive that whatever percentage you're off can can really hit negatively with the person you're talking to and immediately now the conversation is about being on offense and defense because the point is i mean as you said the point is about motive and it's you you, you get distracted that's yeah. really good yeah that is so yeah i'm looking here at my uh, <clears throat> middle finger in my left hand and had a splinter they'd gone really deep uh the other day when sun was out so kathy was there and they handed her the tweezers and some kind of a sharp blade, but I think, yeah, that's such a tiny thing, but it's bugging my whole body. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you, yeah, you hit the nail on the head. That, um, uh, yeah, it's 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 just the easiest thing to go. Uh, you know, you're mean, versus, <laughs> yeah. So that's what that's a good dis, uh, distinction and. It, it um, if it's possible, I, I, you know, maybe one of the spiritual disciplines ought to be the discipline of asking good questions. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> they might, uh, because this is very much we operate in uh, we operate by the flesh in the good sense. You know, much of the, many of the references in Scripture to the flesh are good, and uh, Jesus even says, "Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part with me." And the word became flesh. And John writing, gosh, get this. This is like 65 years after the resurrection. He says, I want you, your joy to be full, this first John. Because of the things we heard and saw and felt and touched. We touched his flesh. And it, it just revolutionized our lives. And he's writing to these people saying, we want you to have the same joy we had about what we touched. And so the flesh is inherently good, but it's got to be trained. C.S. Lewis's uh, little book, The Abolition of Man, is a good book on this. Um, because he said, uh, you know, the, the, if the flesh isn't trained, then you're going to create little monsters. And little monsters are always on the attack. Uh, and can feel threatened. And that's the basic orientation of an animal, by the way, versus a human, is, uh, you know, the reason that animals, a lot of them have eyes on the side of the head, even though the eyes function the same way and the brain functions similarly. For example, a bird. The right brain, which controls the left eye, is on the lookout for what is not anticipated. Not really, they just doesn't know. It's on the lookout, which is looking out for danger. And the right eye, controlled by the left, is more, it focuses on the immediate and can distinguish between the grain of sand and that seed. So you often see a bird pecking on the gravel and going, oh, in heaven's name, they do that. 
while they turn the head. But that left eye, controlled by the right brain, just like in our brain, is widely vigilant and it's just looking out for danger. Hmm. We are different made in the, in the image of God that in the hands of God, the world is a perfectly safe place to be. If you start there, then you can have a disagreement with someone that becomes a conversation which is constituted and includes argument, but not quarrel. Because a quarrel is out to prove and it is out to defend. I find it fascinating. Defend is a Greek word where we get a word apologetics. So obviously there is a place for defending the faith. But I guess the running joke is just about every Christian is, is, is an apologist. We defend what we should, what, what often is indefensible in our own behavior or our motives or our, the way we see things. And we become apologists. And at that point, an apologist is a destructive thing. So I, I'm curious, you know, we have the one end is turning an argument into a quarrel. But if we try to run from that uh, and avoid the argument altogether, we go, I think, to, towards the other end, which is also not good. Yes, um, very good. So so how how do you see that playing out or how maybe how do we avoid that? How do we see that correctly? Yes, the famous... Uh... Therapist uh, Rollo May, many, 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 many years ago, said, uh, The opposite of love is not hatred, it's apathy. Mm. And um, so, for some reason, I'm hearing music in the background, like a church. Do you hear it? Yeah. I know it is. It's a Christmas gift that our kids gave us. It's, Okay, well, see, listeners, when you listen to me, it's like you start to hear music. And since I have no control over it, we're just pressing on. <laughs> That's different. Okay. So <laughs> this was not planned. Um, yeah, here's what happens, Pat. It's a good point. Uh, that uh, we acquiesce. And when you acquiesce, what's that word mean? I'm literally just thinking, Mike, don't ask me what that word means. <laughs> oh, man. Sorry. You know, the secret is you can Google it while we're talking and sound more intelligent than we really are. It, it basically is uh, you cave. You cave in. And most people cave in because they don't want to have a quarrel. They assume that was this will go to a quarrel. Mm. And so what happens is you acquiesce. And... Uh, Back when I was a pastor, but I, I guess to this day, um, I still do some counseling. And I see this quite a bit in couples that um, one is the dominant yep. and the other just acquiesces. And it's called peace at all costs. Mm. Now, peace at all costs, that uh, picture of peace is assuming that we're at war. And there's your problem right there. Mm. Hmm. 
So yeah. I listen carefully in conversations with Kathy and anyone else that I'm with. And if I hear a war, more, war metaphor, I know this thing has gone into the realm of a quarrel. It's not going to go well. Mm. But again, you have to be an aggressive listener. So this came up in a, in a recent conversation. Where do you see compromise fit in to that? Or does it? Does it fit in? Yeah, it doesn't fit in. The better word is um, accommodation. That's what politics is, by the way. It's accommodation, which is give and take. That's different than compromise. Compromise is, for example, you believe Jesus Christ is the second person of the Godhead. Would you ever compromise on that? No. No. Accommodation is, you know, I believe that, but I'm with a good friend who doesn't. I'm not picking up the vibes that this person really wants to have a discussion about it. So I will accommodate them. Now, here's where I get the idea of accommodation. So we know the Father, Son, and Spirit for all eternity have been in conversation with one another, communion, all of that. What language were they speaking? <laughs> Great question. Well, the simple one is, I don't know. <laughs> We don't know if it's this music that's playing in the background. <laughs> we don't know. But how did they communicate with us? Oh, put it another way. Do you really think they were speaking Hebrew to one another? <laughs> so what is Hebrew? English. What is language? It is an accommodation to, for hum to humans. It's an accommodation to make your abode with someone. Uh, Jesus was um, took on a body. That's an accommodation. They, so he took it on, he became half man, half God, right? <laughs> Not quite. That would have been a compromise. <laughs> yeah, wow. So accommodation is uh, supernatural. Yeah. Uh, in, in what Christ did, but it's an accommodation. So uh, the word becoming flesh. And in that way, he could uh, accommodate himself to our sin condition. He could accommodate himself to his bride. All of these things require accommodation. So that's why politics, uh, Vaslav Havel talked, uh, described as the art of the impossible because it requires conversation and uh, accommodation, which can never be perfectly arrived or perfectly achieved. So ultimately, it's politics is impossible, but you have to strive for it. Mm. Which I find is very interesting because, uh, again, we're, you know, disclaimer here, we are uh, nonpartisan. But if you listen carefully, uh, in his first press conference, our new president, uh, Joe Biden, said, politics is the art of the possible. Hmm. A reversal of what um, I think the framers would have felt, the founders, um, Havel, Aquinas. And those are two different visions for um, society, one is called the constrained 
view because it's the art of the impossible. So in limits, the other is the unconstrained view that it's the art of the possible. And therefore, uh, government is more the solution. In the other view, government is not the solution. Traditions, religion, family, so on and so forth are solutions. So you, you just in that little tiny phrase, you see why, and I think this infects probably both parties today, they believe it actually more in the art of the possible. So it quickly becomes a quarrel, denigrating the other side. So when it when it comes to when it comes to um, thinking about avoiding, uh, you know, checking out or, or, or bowing out, um, and caving in, when it when it comes to avoiding that, mm -hmm. uh, what are what are maybe signs of a healthy argument when that's not happening? If that makes sense. Uh, I guess yeah. Not, yeah. Yeah. When you acquiesce, um, you, you know, it's like someone says, you know, I'll forgive, but I won't forget. Well, then you didn't forget, first of all. So in acquiescing, you never forget. And so often um, what happens is uh, too many quarrels are actually history lessons. What do you mean? Well, you said this. Uh, well, yeah, but only because, mm. you know, a couple months ago you said this. Oh, that's fascinating. I thought that, um, it, you know, again, fascinating that God says, I'll th I will, I forget. I, I throw those as far as the east is from the west. He's, he's kind of a stab at a metaphor to say, I'm not going to bring this stuff back up. It's dealt with. Acquiescing doesn't deal with anything. And so it lays there dormant, but the embers are glowing. Mm. And uh, and then, so you turn history lessons. You shove something in someone's face that they, that then that really, really hurts because the other person thought you had dealt with it. It's the difference, I think we talked about this before, the difference between scabs and scars. Have we talked about that? Uh, yeah, I think so. Scab, you yeah, it never heals. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. So, listeners, right. go find the podcast. We don't have <laughs> we don't have a search engine. That's not we're not that sophisticated. So, Mike, when when you're working with maybe other couples, uh, or or if you're talking to someone and you sense they're acquiescing, uh, how do you, how do you help steer that away? Like, how do you steer them away from that? Well, you, I mean, you said well earlier. Uh, I have to discipline myself to ask 20 questions because you can't steer someone that we're not, we're not oxen <laughs> and uh, you have to see if they want to be drawn mm. in a direction that is an art and a skill and it's a discipline and uh, it's a discipline you have to cultivate not in the heat of the moment. So in the heat of the moment, it's a natural behavior is not okay what was that thing that uh, what they say on that podcast there right. shut right. up honey i'm trying to remember how to behave <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, that, me a 
<laughs> that's that's so I think what you're saying then is to acquiesce is typically a response uh, or in response to um, someone else kind of taking that dominant quarrel position. So if I want to help avoid, maybe it's my spouse or maybe it's even a coworker from acquiescing, part of that, the onus is on me to, to shape the conversation so that it doesn't happen. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. Because acquiesce, the person who acquiesce feels... I'm, I'm uh, threatened. What, what is it that some animals, they go on their back uh, and just put their paws up and they're essentially giving up, you know, it's a kind of a last ditch effort to don't kill me. Mm. And, um, but they've given up. And so what's really sad is that if your friendship, whether or not you're married or not, you have someone who is saying, I'm giving up on the friendship, but I'm trying to keep peace here, but we're not going to be better friends. Mm. Even when you score your point, you know, Germany and the Axis uh, after World War One didn't come out better friends with Britain and Russia and all the victors. They came out embittered um, because they acquiesced in the end. They had to. Bismarck had to. Uh, and he, in seeking some kind of a. Um, terms those terms are harsh and uh, so i'm in no way justifying or rash giving any rational um justification of what followed after that with hitler and the rest but you know hitler parlayed that he parlayed all that acquiescing in a nation that was seething with resentment so the uh, as churchill said it wasn't world war one or world war two it was like 30 40 years of non-stop war World War One essentially settled very little. Mm. So, for what it's worth, acquiesce. Um, I, I think you make a great point because I, I think about again growing up in our family, um, the five of us, my mom and the four boys, we acquiesced to my father at times when we shouldn't have, but we did. We didn't know what else to do. But it was just, uh, yes, sir, okay. In fact, here's a. <laughs> No, they said that. Here's a funny story. But when you acquiesce, don't do what I did once. I was once, I was just, um, I think I was in high school. And a friend of mine who I found out later on was an evangelical kid. He went to Wheaton College, played baseball. I wasn't a Christian then. And all I know is that um, he, I think he was so cool because a teacher was kind of reaming him out. And he had this uh, slump in his chair in, in like chemistry class and going, yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, okay, thank you very much, uh, Mr. Teacher. Kind of looked at his watch like, are you done yet? <laughs> and <laughs> I don't know what got into me. Probably the devil. <laughs> and uh, so I go home, and my dad is reaming me out or something, and I decided to take this uh, slump shoulder kind of slack. <laughs> yeah, okay, are you through yet? Uh, yeah, yeah, I got it. <sighs> Boring. I was about that went well. Oh my god, I was about you know six seconds into this pantomime and I look at my dad's face and it would turn beet red when he was really raging. And I thought, oh my god, what have I done? (laughs) (laughs) It was like I had built my uh, Shangri-La on the top of Vesuvius and I'm hearing the whole mountain rumble and it's 80, 70 or whatever. I thought, I'm a do I'm a goner. 
I really do think it was everything that he had inside himself to not hit me. He never hit us. And, uh, but I, I know. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so when you it. acquiesce, don't act that way. <laughs> and most acquiesce do, because they know they, they could uh, get an even more violent response. But yeah, there is something. And I think that Christians haven't helped in this either, you know. Um, that when they cite, you know, you know wife submit, uh, if I, there's something I see, at least in my generation, the boomers and the Gen X, it is uh, women who are about, uh, they're about as vivacious as vanilla pudding. And it's just because they acquiesce. Mm. And uh, so for you lovers of vanilla pudding, sorry, but... Uh, <laughs> It's just, uh, uh, I don't know a lot of robust, you know, well-rounded, well-developed, faith-widening women in in these generations. Now, I don't know a whole lot of men either, but the fact of the matter is the uh, Christian faith is resplendent through the centuries. Of women contributing what I, I think one tradition calls the feminine mystique, what they bring to the table. And all that's been gone, I probably through dominant men saying, I teach, you can't teach, and uh, or we'll give you a place to teach, was shunted over here in a ministry so women can talk to men as women, which I think has been one of the most disastrous things to happen in the Western church. And as a result, you have uh, women who disproportionately, as opposed to men, acquiesce. Having said all that, there are the marriages I know where the woman really is an outgoing, powerful leader. And the man acquiesces, and he's like milk toast. And I, I know those men because on occasion... I swear half the reason they want to go golfing is they can just be themselves, so to say. Mm-hmm. And they pull out the cigar and they drink the beer. I mean, I knew one guy. He drank a beer every hole. 18 beers for 18 holes. Oh and I think God. a lot of it was that can't do this at home. I gotta have a man cave. And yeah. I think yeah, think about man cave. What is what the heck is that saying? <laughs> Course it says you're a caveman. <laughs> you want to behave like the caveman, which I think I'm not sure the virtue and all that. Or you want to act like some kind of primitive being. I'm not sure the virtue in that. But a lot of it has to do with just uh, most marriages are not adult to adult. There's usually a parent and a child, and the child acquiesces and then has to go off and find something that's really fulfilling. Then they kind of use that to band aid together a marriage. I guess you can figure out they don't have a man cave. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, e- even thinking about quarreling, thinking about uh, assuming or not assuming motive, I mean, especially today, we are terrible at that. And so I think in the workplace, that becomes even more challenging to pull off. Um, yeah. How, how do you foster an environment that, that you can pull that off, um, especially when it seems 
you know, the trend is uh, we want to build safe places or safe spaces. Sorry, got to get the alliteration there. Safe spaces. Um, how do we how do we foster really good environments where arguments are healthy and we don't lead to quarreling or acquiescence? I am not sure you I don't think you do in most of the uh, workplace environments. Um, yeah, I think about, for example, uh, there's a good little book on the uh, Inklings. If you're not familiar with Inklings, was uh, with uh, C.S. Lewis, Tolkien, um, Barfield, um, uh, all these that came together. They actually were together for several decades. And their, their overarching purpose, their transcendent purpose, was try to re-enchant the disenchanted West with imaginative literature. That's pretty fascinating. Um, they were called the Inklings. And they, uh, I've been in the pub over in Oxford that they met in for quite a period of time. But they used to meet every like Tuesday nights or Thursday or Thursday morning or what have you. And uh, But one of the good books called The Literary Lives of These Men uh, takes on or take uh, reminds us of the fact that they they had some pretty stiff arguments. And it didn't endanger their friendships. So Token was a uh, very devoted Catholic. But, uh, and he um, was, um, what's the best way to put it? He was very thorough in his faith. It didn't want any cracks and crevices they felt were unnecessary in what he wrote. So uh, the Fellowship of the Ring uh, the whole Lord of the Rings took him over 25 years to write because he kept going. Well, and what used to drive him batty was C.S. Lewis's book where he goes kind of like, wait a minute, but over here you said this. And um, he, he thought writing children's books is, oh my gosh, what is, and they had these arguments, but they didn't, they weren't quarrels. I like that. And we, we hardly see, so most people don't uh, imagine that uh, Inklings, they, they each said they had some rather stiff arguments about, about some of the things that Owen Barfield would write. Because once you head into imaginative literature, fantasy literature, you really are out there on the edge. And um, the value of having good people who will say, I think that's BS. And, uh, they, but they came away great friends. Um, so having said all that, and it's out of that, by the way, um, came in the Chronicles of Narnia, Lewis's comment by Mr. Beaver to Lucy, who Lucy wants to know whether or not Aslan is safe. And so you're familiar with the famous. Yeah. Safe. safe. Yeah. Who said anything about safe? He's good. I think Pat, there's a, that's a fundamental that has been lost in the triumph of the therapeutic or as Christian Smith of others has said, the gospel that is heard today is far away from the ancient gospel, which is far more rigorous. And today it is moralistic, therapeutic deism. Moralistic, a few moralizing things about piety and walking with the Lord, General, generalities and abstractions, moralistic, therapeutic. It's all about grace. You're perfect the way you are. Uh, blah, 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 blah. We love you. Again, all these things are half-truths, which are whole lies. 
and deism god is talked about in abstract terms also concepts about god things like that language you would never use in a robust marriage so moralistic therapeutic deism is the gospel today christian smith notre dame has written a great great deal you can google it so it's um jamie smith at um up there at Calvin College. So I guess if your name is Smith, you can write about that stuff. Um, and so out of this comes this notion of a church is a safe place. And uh, so uh, I always like uh, Pilgrim at Tinker Creek, where uh, she writes, her name escapes me at this moment, but if we really were dealing with God, they would hand out crash helmets as you came into church. <laughs> yeah. So once we've lost that path, and then... The business world is often two, three steps further away from that. So we don't even hear about this stuff in church. You get into a notion that was developed now uh, in the 1940s called brainstorming. And brainstorming is, is often, that's the safe environment too, because, hey, let's put on board here all the ways we could skin this cat. Ready, go. And I, I watch brainstorming sessions like, oh, that is utter crap. But, but instead, no, no, it's take off the critical cap. So now we can take a helium balloon to the moon. That's a good idea. Okay, put that up there. Um, we could hold our breath underwater for three days. That's a good idea. Put that up there. We could... Um, Cite the literature for you if you wanted to, listeners, you can get a hold of us, we'll give it to you. Um, it is now known today that uh, brainstorming yields less innovative solutions than instead if you have a robust round table that includes crap detectors. And so, Pat, to your point, the difference in the uh, business world, and yes, we have written a free book, by the way, on this called Widen the Lens, is there is an infrastructure that includes those who bias the right hemisphere of the brain who are better at seeing through these cracks and crevices and uh, playing a crap detector. And if you don't have a crap detector, then you end up with brainstorming, you end up with less innovative solutions, and you end up with um, not, uh, uh, you don't end up with arguments. Mike, that makes me think I had this profound shift when you started talking about crap detectors and the court jester and the, the benefit of a round table. It actually changed how I understood comedy. Uh, and I, I'm, I'm curious your thoughts on the importance of comedy, raw comedy, uh, that is, is, is not filtered and, and may be even offensive, um, but to not be offended by it uh, because it, it is highlighting... That's how that falls. Like it's intentionally <laughs> calling that out. And and so That's we right. ought not take it too seriously, but um and, and then therefore get offended by it. That's right. Yeah, that one of the poets put it this way that uh, humor makes all things palatable. If you're laughing, your defenses are down. So you're right. Uh in, in King Arthur's court, the craft detector is called the court jester. And so you're, you're right, Pat. I hadn't thought about this in a long time either. Is that um, humor uh, basically is founded on the view of uh, 
you know, in a way, we're all fools. I mean, we're, we're deep in the sauce on so many things we don't know about. <clears throat> and how would we discover that? We can't have a uh, boxing gloves up, got to defend my turf, got to defend my stance, got to be an apologist. It's got to be a more of a, of a, like the card game we were playing last night where <laughs> I won't mention her name, but she's in our family and she got smoked on a hand. So instead of counting her points, she just kind of lays them on the table and says, you guys count them. <laughs> <laughs> and everybody laughs, but it's because, you know, so what is, what is our daughter saying at that point? My identity is not on the line here, but this is a game where we keep points. And uh, it's a humorous way to saying, I can't stand the fact that I just lost so badly here. Just count him for me, okay? And uh, that's what uh, a court jester does. That, it is fascinating that King Arthur in the fable of King Arthur and his round table, the round, the kingdom collapses when the court jester and the sage, the wise sage Merlin, depart the kingdom. And it's because... The knights, after a while, just said, the hell with this critique. We don't need this crap. We don't need crap detectors. We know what we're doing. And so most businesses, most organizations, most churches no longer have the sage. They certainly don't have the court jester, which was actually is the prophet and the prophetic voice. They just don't have it. We've joked before, but it's a good joke that the Western church is a nonprofit organization and it is not organized to, uh, to invite and take seriously the prophetic voice. That's different than affirming it. Affirming is fine. I can affirm all sorts of things from a distance. Inviting it in and taking it seriously. That's why Merlin and Dagonet the Corchester eventually left the round table because they had better things to do in life and they weren't being taken seriously anymore. So a business, and I can only count, I'm only familiar with a handful of businesses they actually invite in and institute that office in their leadership. Good book on this if you want to read it, by the way, although he recently passed away. But when he was president of the University of Southern California, Stephen Sample, the book's called Contrarian Leadership. And they had to put contrarians on their board of trustees, board of directors, and USC shot up in the U.S. News and World Rankings during Sample's presidency. He attributed a lot of that to a court jester, which tends to be the outside view that says, why do you guys do it that way? So uh, talking about this, Pat, it's a double whammy in a way, because if you, if you don't experience it in a business, it's hard to do it in your home because you've never seen it in your business. Yeah, um, you, you, you see acquiescence, you see um, quarrels, you certainly don't see the round table. And so this really gets compressed when you come home, it's just the two of you. Mm -hmm. 
and you just you haven't you haven't touched it flesh and blood you haven't really tasted and touched it anywhere you don't see it in church so here you are happily married now and got some kids and munchkins and you're this is just kind of an abstract idea you never actually seen it played out anywhere didn't see it played out with your parents they didn't say we'd like you to come in and we're going to have a con we're going to have an argument here Really, what you do now, you do watch parents quarrel. We haven't seen it, we haven't felt it, we haven't tasted it, we haven't touched it. And I think a lot of it is this advent of brainstorming and the rise of moralistic, therapeutic deism that we code over with tons of scripture and call it the gospel. It's basically, we affirm you, you're a great person. I heard on a show the other day, you're perfect the way you're made. I'm not perfect the way I'm made. Even creation isn't perfect the way it was made. God said it was good. There you go. I have a running joke with a friend of mine. I uh, said, um, here's what I learned when I spent my internship in England. After my first sermon, wise woman, very old, probably with the Lord today. She was very kind, but she said, you Americans, you don't know how to save your superlatives. Now, see, that's being a court jester. And what she was saying is, Americans are famous for saying, we had an awesome program. This is going to be incredible here. This is going to be, we are passionate about this. We are. And her point was, if something really does, incredible does ever happen, you've used up all your, you've used up all that language. You've cheapened it. And I found it fascinating that Oxford was part of one of the vaccine rollouts. And again, reading The Economist, uh, uh, the professor at Oxford who was lead said, uh, Yes, well, you know, we have a we have a pretty good uh, university here doing da 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 da. Pretty good university. <laughs> <laughs> and so, I was really struck by her comments. And that summer in England, that we instead of using superlatives, ought to use comparatives a lot, a, a lot more. And that would a comparative is. Um, Maybe I'd say to Kathy, I'd say, hey, you know, I've got an idea here on something that may or may not be helpful. Let's talk about it. Versus, I've had this awesome idea, this incredible thing we ought to do. Well, I've already put her on her heels. Said, oh, no, this is signed, sealed, and delivered. What are we even talking about? Mm. Um, so sound like may sound like a bit of a rabbit trail, but I think to our point, that is what we're talking about here. Tell me where this is embodied anywhere. Yeah, it's hard to think about. Yeah. Yeah. Very difficult. But worthwhile to at least um, listeners take take this podcast and listen with your spouse or good friend and ask yourself, hey, do we do some of this stuff? 
don't use the uh, you know the superlatives. Aren't it awesome? Aren't it incredible? <laughs> this is something we absolutely have to do. I don't know many things that we absolutely have to do. Love the Lord your God. Love your neighbor. Um, <laughs> you know the old joke is there's only one thing you can absolutize and you can't absolutize him anyway you're supposed to absolutely love the lord your god with all your heart soul mind and strength but everything else love your neighbor as yourself but everything else do you absolutize that you love it too much that's an idol it's an idol and so the art of accommodation conversation comes in with i may love this too much I might love it too little. I think Americans love absolutized, over-the-top superlative language in the faith community. They love it too much. And uh, so I, I really tip my head to Colossian Forum, a little email I get every once in a while <laughs> there this week. The title of the little thing was, Not Another Small Group. Hmm. And they're just saying, we're just over the top on this stuff. Over the top means we've absolutized it. It is not necessary for every person to get in a small group, at least as we define them. So we'll probably talk about in a future podcast that Bonhoeffer's small group wasn't in the church, and it wasn't even with Christians, and it wasn't to evangelizing. You think about that. That's a future podcast, by the way. I'll keep you coming back week after week. So to recap, civilization is constituted by conversation, which Aquinas said includes and involves argument. And argument is simply the open-handed, this matters. And so I'm not risking our friendship. I'm saying that the truth probably lies somewhere between us. As friends, let's have a stout conversation about they're not a watered down beer but a good heavy stout and as you know if you study guinness it was supposed to be drunk in three big gulps let's down this thing and see if we can come closer to the truth recognizing we'll never fully arrive, we'll probably revisit this again, and we'll tip another one in three big gulps and actually enjoy it and get to the place where we look forward to having stout conversations about difficult things, feeling entirely safe because the world in God's hands is an essentially and inherently safe place to be.